This show includes adult conversations around sometimes sensitive topics. Check the show notes at cxmhpodcast.com for trigger warnings. You're listening to the CXMH Podcast. CXMH is a podcast at the intersection of faith and mental health. Hey, welcome back to the show. My name is Robert Vore and I'm your host. I know before you uh, shouted at your podcast listening device, I know we are on summer break, but we're going to take a quick break from that break, a little uh, intermission into our summer break from the show to bring you this episode. I'm super excited about it. I got the chance to talk with award-winning writer Jonathan Merritt. If you're anywhere in the Christian world, you've probably read multiple articles of his, seen him on TV, things like that. But he has a new book out called Learning to Speak God from Scratch, Why Sacred Words Are Vanishing and How We Can Revive Them. And as somebody who really values language, who thinks the way we speak about things is really important. This I was I was super excited to read this book and to talk with him about it. So we wanted to bring you that. Uh, it comes out this week, so we wanted to make sure that we released this episode this week. Beyond that, we will be back in a few weeks with Season 3 officially kicking off of CXMH with, drumroll, some new surprises including a brand new co-host who I can't wait for you to meet. If you have any guesses about who that is, feel free to tweet them at us. But we'll have a new co-host. We'll have some information on some pretty exciting projects. And we've already recorded some of the interviews for that. And I have to tell you, the ones that we've recorded so far and the ones we have on the schedule to record are some of the most interesting and practically useful and beneficial interviews that we've done yet. I cannot wait for you to hear the conversations that we're having in season three. That will kick off in a couple weeks here, sometime in September. So be on the lookout for that. Make sure that you're subscribed to CXMH, that you're connected with us on social medias so that you will know when we kick back off officially. And we will talk to you then. In the meantime, here is this episode where we're talking to where I'm talking to Jonathan Merritt. Hey, welcome back to the show. I am so excited this week to be joined by Jonathan Merritt. Jonathan is an award-winning writer on religion, culture, and politics. Uh, He's a contributing writer for The Atlantic and a contributing editor for The Week. Has been published more than 3,500 articles in all sorts of places like the New York Times, USA Today, BuzzFeed, The Washington Post, Christianity Today. Uh, and he's been interviewed on like ABC World News, NPR, CNN, PBS, Fox News, uh, 60 Minutes, all sorts of things. So quite the respected voice in the religion, culture, politics space. Uh, he's also the author of several critically acclaimed books, including a brand new one that we're going to talk about today called Learning to Speak God from Scratch, Why Sacred Words Are Vanishing and How We Can Revive Them. Jonathan, how are you doing today? I am doing well. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, so glad to have you here. Other than all that kind of fancy bio that I just read, is there uh, anything that 
you'd like the audience to know about you or, or anything like that? Oh, I don't know. Let's see. Are you in Atlanta right now? I am. Yeah. Well, I live there most of my life. So that's interesting. I'm, I'm with you right now from uh, New York City, obviously, but yeah. uh, lived, lived in the Deep South uh, for a long, long time. And I guess that's part of my story. Maybe we can even talk a Talk about it a little bit today. Yeah, I uh, I actually did know that because you and I have exchanged um, jousting text messages about your fandom for the Georgia Bulldogs. Uh, long-time true. listeners of the show will know that I'm an Auburn Tiger, so uh, we have a little bit of rivalry there. But I think, I mean, that's probably as good a place as any to start because this book largely comes out of your move to New York City and kind of encountering what that did, how that how that felt when speaking about spiritual matters, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the you know the book was really born out of a a personal uh, life crisis. So uh, I had written three books by the time I was thirty, and was I guess self aware enough to know that um, I had given away more than the amount of wisdom that I even possessed. You know, one hundred and fifty thousand words for uh, for. A 30-year-old is a lot of words. And so I just made up my mind that I wasn't going to write another book again uh, unless I felt like I had uh, a message that the world needed to hear. Hmm. So it was shortly after that that I moved from uh, Atlanta to New York City, and I encountered this really strange language barrier. Um, that, uh, suddenly it wasn't that I could, couldn't speak English anymore. I could speak English as well as I always could, but I could no longer speak God. I could no longer have, uh, spiritual conversations that I was encountering people who, uh, who were speaking from a different script. Maybe they had, um, they had never heard the words before, or maybe they had heard those words, but uh, they had heard them used in wildly different ways. Or maybe uh, those words had been used to hurt them um, in uh, the religious communities in which they were raised in, in their households growing up. And so um, it, was, it was that move that really sparked the book that that you now see, learning to speak God from scratch, because it was right after that that I, I did some research. I realized I wasn't the only one who felt this way, that the majority, the vast majority of Americans actually, despite widespread religiosity, do not feel comfortable for one reason or another having spiritual conversations. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is a cultural crisis that's happening right under our noses, yeah. And we're not even realizing it. And that's when I decided I would pick up the pen again and write this book. Yeah. So when you're talking about that, you know, people being more hesitant to have spiritual conversations or to use specific words. I mean, obviously, as a writer, words are important to you. But why does that matter? I mean, you say, OK, I'm noticing this trend. Why is that important enough for you to say instead of just an article, because you write tons of articles, thousands of articles, this is worth dedicating an, an entire book to investigate and kind of figure out? 
Well, I, the reason that it took, and it's sort of two questions you've asked there, and both of them are very good. The first one is, is why an entire book and not an article? And that's, that's a great question, because there's a lot of books that uh, I've read, in fact, I'm looking at one right now, I won't hold it up, that you think, <laughs> wow, this, this is a 300-page article. This should have been, you know, maybe 2,000 words, but it's, it, it didn't deserve to be a full book-length project. This book has that much content. In fact, it had to be shaved down to the size that it is. It could have been twice its size, to be honest. Yeah. And, and that's sort of a crazy, fun, difficult, interesting uh, part of it. The other thing is, is why does it matter, generally speaking? And it matters because, you know, after I, after I figured out this was happening, um, after I saw the numbers, uh, that, for example, in the United States, only 7% of Americans say they have a spiritual conversation about once per week. Uh, that even among church-going Christians, practicing Christians, only 13% say they have a spiritual conversation once a week. And that's, that's staggering because yeah. we claim that these things, we claim to care about them, but we can't seem to articulate with any regularity, these ideas. I thought that was fascinating. But that begs a question, who cares? Right. Uh, why, why does it matter? It matters because after that, I spent the next year learning about linguistics. And what I realized was there was an emerging body of research that was showing us a, a tight connection between the language that we use, the words we use, and the thoughts we think. And between the thoughts we think and the um, patterns of behaviors that we exhibit. So, in other words, I use an example in the book. You know, in the English language is a futured language. So we talk about the future. We have different tenses to describe the past, the present, and the future. There are some other languages that are not futured languages. They have one tense, and you sort of intuit the, the time frame that they're talking about from the context of the word. Uh, I think Chinese is, is, is an example of that. If you compare a culture that uses a futured language versus one that does not, you'll find that the futured language, people within the futured language think about the future. And that because they think about the future more often than those who don't use a futured language, their behavior patterns shift. They practice more safe sex. They smoke less. Uh, they save more, by and large, on average, for retirement. So yeah. the language that we use impacts that. Well, what does that matter? That means if we do not talk about God, if we do not talk about faith, if we don't talk about courage, if we don't talk about healing, if we don't talk about sin, if we don't talk about compassion, our lives are less attuned to these transcendent realities and our behavior patterns are less uh, conformed to those realities. So the less we talk about courage, for example, the less we think about courage, and the less we think about courage, the less we will be courageous. So if you care about spiritual realities, the realities of the inner life, and I do, uh, then you have to care about these things because you realize that as a society, if we don't talk about them, we will move further and further away from them. Yeah. And I think there's 
I draw a lot of parallels, obviously, the show being where it is to the way that we talk about mental health and things like that. So when I like, you know, when I do suicide prevention trainings, I talk a lot about the language that we use around suicide and how, I mean, I think there's even, you know, a scriptural basis for the fact that the words that we speak reveal something about what we believe. And then they help then it's like a cycle where they then shape what we believe, you know, so it's this cycle of here I'm communicating more than just what the words mean and that is impacting what we believe you know mm-hmm. yeah you what you're saying is so important and most people do not realize what you just said which is by and large we see language as expressive uh that we say something to to articulate what's inside of us what we know though is is that language is not just expressive it is also formative that the language that we, we, we use actually shapes what is inside of us. And so you're right. Uh, when you talk about mental health is a huge, I mean, that says, is, relates to this in so many ways. But when you talk about mental health, the fact that we have failed to talk about mental health for so many years, uh, and this is not just in the church, this is as a society as well, but right. particularly in the church, uh, we have lacked the tools to express what it is we're experiencing, what it is we're feeling. But by the same token, uh, our own inner lives have, we haven't had language to shape those experiences. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned there's some research that you saw about people using less spiritual language and maybe the reasons behind, right? So you commissioned uh, the Barna Group to do some research on that. So what were some of the most impactful or surprising data that came out of that? Well, the big one that I mentioned before is just flat out that people are not having spiritual conversations. There are yeah. some other data points that I find are interesting. One is why aren't they having spiritual conversations? So yeah. I asked I asked those people who were speaking God infrequently, why not? Why aren't you having more spiritual conversations? What I found was a range of answers. Some people said uh, that religious and spiritual language just seems to create tension and start fights. So if ever you've had a weird uh, conversation about religion at Thanksgiving, you know exactly what <laughs> they're talking about. Uh, you've got people who say, I've been hurt by these words, that I had friends or I had pastors or I had parents who use these words to harm me. Maybe they didn't even realize it. Maybe they thought they were, they were, they were, it was a, it was a, they were doing you a favor, but they used religious language in an abusive way. And so now that language feels really toxic to you. It doesn't feel like something because you've been hurt by it. You're less likely to utilize it even in a different way, even in a better way, even in a less harmful way. Uh, you have a lot of people who say that spiritual language, sacred language, has become politicized. So, uh, you know, you turn on Fox News, you hear the president using religious language to um, uh, make a stump speech and to, um, you know, basically to to get more voters or more supporters. And right. you go, yeah, I don't, I don't really want to be associated with that. Uh, by the same token, by the way, it's not just the right; the left has done it as well. Barack Obama used a lot of of a sacred language. Bill Clinton used a lot of sacred language, tons of it. Yeah. Uh, actually, Bill Clinton was one of the most religious speaking presidents uh, of my lifetime. So 
it, it's it when when you hear people using it in partisan political ways, you go, yeah, I'm not I'm not really into that. I'm not really interested in that. So I, I give a there's an infographic in the book where I list like that you know these I don't know 13 answers or something. There is a range of reasons why uh, that it, th those have all sort of driven the loss of confidence in spiritual conversations. Where we've seen that show up is uh, some other data I mentioned in the book, which is Google Ngram data. So Google has compiled all of the books, articles, speeches, blog posts that uh, are in the, the English-speaking world going back to like 1500. And you can search the usage of words to see the, where words have sort of risen and fallen uh, in, in usage. Yeah. What you find is is that religious language has been in decline for at least the last 50 years. Hmm. Uh, um, all of those words, not, not even just big, meaty theological words, but you take like the fruit of the spirit, those words yeah. are, are, are in decline, many of them by 50% or more. And you mean like literally the names of the, like that list, right? Not just the phrase, the fruit of the spirit. Oh yes, that's right. Like, so gentleness, faithfulness, uh, goodness, those words are all in decline, and I list them in the book if you see it. Uh, the word grace plummeted, mercy declined, wisdom has gone down, faith has plummeted, sacrifice decreased, honesty declined, righteousness, evil, hmm. courage, uh, compassion. You start looking at these words and you go, oh my gosh, we're using these 50% less than we did in the mid-20th century? And that, that, that's when you go, what is the effect this is ha having on us individually and as a collective society? And I think if you care about these words and the, and the, the, the realities that they point to, you have to take seriously what's happening. Yeah. So there's a, a couple points that you brought up there that I want to follow back up on. The first one is you talked about people being hurt by language, right? People using language in an abusive way, things like that. Um, and there's actually a, a passage here that you wrote where you're, you're drawing this analogy of language as kind of these embers. And you say, if we fail to stoke the flames, they will snuff out. And if we misuse them, the flames rage and people run for their lives. As with real fire, it can either heat our homes or burn them to the ground. Now, obviously, there's a section of the population that uh, kind of are fed up with things like PC culture or, you know, people being too sensitive, you know, I think of snowflake or safe spaces or whatever have you. What What's your response to, you know, kind of the ideas that, well, words are just words. Everybody's being too sensitive. We should all just grow up. Uh, yeah, that's interesting. I mean, language has memory. So you, you know, every word's meaning has two components. It, it has the definition and the connotation. And the connotation largely comes from the way that a word has been used. The problem is people who misuse words only consider the definition. In other mm. words, if it's accurate to use this word according to my definition, it doesn't matter if the word is harmful to someone according to the connotation. That's a very um, uh, egocentric and I would say um, a selfish theory of language. It, it certainly is difficult to comport with 
a theology that holds that you should consider others as better than yourself, to quote the Bible. That means it doesn't matter if I think it's harmless. If someone else thinks it's harmful, they their perspective trumps my perspective. Yeah. Uh, most people have never overlaid that onto their words. And so what happens is, uh, you have people causing harm with their words. I am less concerned, however, with people who, who are un-PC to other adults. I mean, that's bad. Where it really gets bad is when people uh, misuse and abuse language with children because yeah. children, lack, children lack the full range of resources that an adult does to cope with these sorts of things. So a parent who uses, quote, tough love in their language actually can end up causing emotional, physical, uh, or um, uh, emotional, psychological abuse to a child without even realizing it, uh, just uh, for the sake of being, quote, tough. Yeah. And uh, I, think, I think that's a really bad way to understand and to use language. It does have sort of a fire effect. It can, it can singe a child. And you often meet children later in life who are um, linguistic burn victims. Hmm. Uh, yeah. they, have, they have all of these scars from parents and teachers and pastors who took that sacred fire and torched them. And I think that's sad. Yeah. Well, and that relates to what you're talking about of people who... You know, we we look at language and we say, hey, the only context I've heard that in is these specific contexts that were really harmful to me or were really abusive to me. Therefore, I'm not going to use it, right? If you've only heard biblical language in, uh, hey, you have to vote for this one person or whatever it is, then you're not going to want to use that. Even if somebody says, well, maybe there's another definition because ingrained in you is that experience. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's right, because because you cannot uh, pretend that you use language in a vacuum. Um, it's always attached to our experiences. Yeah. So that's one thing I talk about in this book is, is that um, as we begin to reimagine words, and that's really the approach I'm, I'm arguing for, is getting together and reimagining what these words could mean or should mean in our day. What we have to do is, is confront some of the negative connotations and negative experiences that have stuck to those words. So I'm not asking people to do something that's going to be easy. No, 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 no. It's very difficult because you're going to have to confront your own demons. Um, you know, when you, when you reimagine the word sin, for example, you're going to have to confront the pastor who screamed that word at you and others from the pulpit. When you uh, uh, confront the word hell and you reimagine that word and your conception of that word, you're going to have to wrestle with the street preacher who, who, who shouted at you through a bullhorn that you're going there. Yeah. Uh, when you when you talk about mercy, you're going to have to confront the fact that maybe you didn't receive that from your mother. And these are hard things. You're you're really wrestling with some difficult stuff. But this is the only way that language lives. Yeah. It's the only way that it lives. So for a good example, you've said the word sin twice now in this interview. And both times I've cringed a little inside because I've thought, oh, man, I don't want 
you know, this podcast, I, I want it to be positive and uplifting. And so, you know, when people start using language like that, I kind of shrink a little. But uh, that's exactly what you're talking about is because there's so much baggage attached to that and specific context around that, that it makes me like more uncomfortable, even though it's just a word that in faith conversations we should be able to use. Yeah. And the other thing is, is merely avoiding the word doesn't get rid of the word. Uh, it doesn't solve the problem presented by your experience with that word. The only way to reform your experience of that word is to reimagine that word in a more life-giving way and to begin to use the word in a more life-giving way because it does point to something that is real, but uh, oftentimes it's been misused. And that's one of those words that I find people shrink back from a lot. I, I just recently, last week, I went down to Times Square with a microphone and I spent all day interviewing people, just man on the street style. I'm going to release it in a series on YouTube and asking them questions about what they think different words mean. It was shocking to find people who you use the word sin and immediately a negative reaction. And I would ask people, how often do you use that word? Not very much. Yeah. Not at all. Yeah. And these are people from all over the country. Uh, I think there, I think that, that, that feeling of shrinking back may be something that a lot of people feel when it comes to that word. But then the question is, what are the words that you use to point to? Because words are signposts. They're just pointing to something. What words do you use to point to uh, all of the things that seem to be not working real well in our world? What is that word? Now you can go and pick a new word. The problem is, is if you decide you're going to pick a new word, you're going to talk about our problems. You're not going to talk about sin, you're going to talk about problems. That word comes with its own limitations, number one. Number two, what are you going to do then when you go as a Christian and you go and read the sacred text? And now yeah. you're bumping up against the word sin again. So you can't get away from it. Uh, it doesn't mean that you should go around and use words that are offensive to other people just to polarize them and say, oh, look, now I've used that word. I am learning to speak God from scratch. That's not what I mean. But I do wonder if there's some more life left in some of these words. And I am imagining what it might look like to get into a community and to begin to dream about what it would look like if we breathe new life into some of these words that have fallen by the wayside. Yeah. And the other thing that I think about is if you are just replacing words that you think are problematic, give it five, ten years, all the same. If, if you've attached it to the same ideas, the same things, give it five, ten years, and those words will then be the ones that you're trying to avoid. So it's just this constant progression of how can we repackage the same things that we didn't like before. That's right. Yeah. So the, the notion is, is like, it's not the word sin people actually have a problem with. It's not, it's not the combination of those three letters in that order. That's nothing special. That's just a box. It's a box that we place an idea in. It's the idea that's become problematic to us. So what we really want to do is, is we want to, to, to borrow the language of N.T. Wright, we want to unpack and repack that box in a way that's more helpful. And that's what every generation of believer has to do. There's a constant unpacking and repacking, or as I say in the book, a constant deconstruction and reconstruction, a constant disorientation and reorientation that has to occur. 
That's how we begin to conform our minds in a certain way, to shape our thinking in a certain way that's more helpful and that's more life-giving. But if we simply just avoid the thing altogether, it, it's, it, it's not going to serve us real well as a community over the long haul. Yeah. So in this book, you point out that there's kind of three responses to dying languages and including, you know, kind of our loss of sacred words. And you've labeled them fossilization, which is kind of just, hey, we need to go back to the original meanings. We're not changing anything. Substitution, which is largely what we've been talking about here of, well, I'm just going to kind of shuffle things around and try to put new words on it. And then transformation, which is what you were just talking about, where we actually reimagine these things. We kind of evaluate the meanings and things like that, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. And I, and I think that I'll say most of the people that I encounter, particularly in the evangelical church, their, their knee-jerk reaction is fossilization. They circle the wagons and they say, the way that we understand these words is the way we've always understood them and the way we should and don't mess with our words. Right. So, for example, go to a, go to a new Calvinist church and go to a Sunday school class and question their understanding of God's sovereignty or salvation or the way these things work, won't be long. You'll be shown the door. You'll be told, see ya, you're out. Like, it's not going to work. Why? They fossilize those words. The problem is, is that sacred language has never worked that way. Never. No language has ever worked that way. In fact, linguists will tell you, they don't agree on a lot, but they do say, Every language will, will either change or die. It will either trend toward evolution or extinction, period. Hmm. There are no exceptions. And so if you look at, if you look even at, at, at the Bible, what you find is, is that the language was, was evolving from the very beginning. It was, it was evolving, and so you find a great example. I'll give you a great example. We've been talking about the word sin. So in, in, uh, in Temple Judaism, sin was talked about as a weight. It was, and it was not an individualistic weight. It was a collective weight. Hmm. It, was, it was something that weighed on us as a community. And the result was individuals didn't necessarily have to do anything. They just joined the community to, uh, to get the weight lifted. So they'd come, come around at the Day of Atonement, and they would let the, the priest would lay his hands on the, on the sacrifice, the scapegoat, and chase it out of the town. And the symbolism was, now the weight has been lifted off of the community. But what happened is, over time, the way that the community behaved... Uh, the weight would lower again and it would get heavy again. And each year you'd have to do it again and again and again. What you find is, is that by the time the New Testament comes around, the conception of sin has morphed radically. It now, the predominant understanding is not as weight. You won't really find that language in the New Testament. You'll find that sin is talked about as a debt. And so Paul is able to say something like the wages of sin is death. Now, if you had to put Paul in a time machine and send him back to, to uh, you know, the, the temple in uh, early Judaism, uh, that would have been a concept that would be totally foreign. Nobody would have really understood the wages of sin is, is death. Jesus even begins to explore the reciprocal notion of, of that dominant understanding. So Jesus is able to say, okay, wait, if there is some cosmic 
ledger. And individually, we can debit out of that account. Maybe we can deposit into that account. So he says things like store up for yourself treasures in heaven. Hmm. Well, again, that's, that is a very new idea. Nobody was talking. Jesus is reimagining sin in a really radical way. And sin has since been reimagined multiple times. You walk into a church today, somebody may say, we have a sin problem. Problem solution language was not a new, you're not going to, that's not biblical language. Uh, or somebody will say, we're sin sick. We have sin sickness. Hmm. Clinical language is not something you're going to find uh, in the older or, 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 or New Testaments. And so there's this kind of shift that's happened. And people go, yeah, 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 but we're talking about sin the way that sin has always been talked about. And you go, yeah, no, no, you're not, you're not actually. And when you study the way that Paul uses words like gospel, uh, euangelion, uh, he's reappropriating this word, transforming it, and giving us a new way to think about it. Now, that's problematic to a lot of modern people. It's not problematic to ancient Jews and Christians. Uh, they, by and large, took an imaginative approach to, to the scripture. They took an imaginative approach to words. Uh, but uh, shortly after the advent of dictionaries, we really changed as a community. And we decided we would start taking the definitions of word, words and placing them in liquid amber, fossilizing them. And it was, uh, in some ways, a pragmatic decision because it's very easy to control to normalize uh, certain expressions of Christianity. You can chase away doubters. You can chase away uh, questioners. You can chase away the spiritually curious. And you can keep the community, quote, pure by doing that. But it is also probably the quickest way to kill a language of any kind. Yeah. And what you just mentioned about kind of our shift in how we think about language and words from kind of imaginative to like dictionary style was one of the most interesting parts, I think, of the book for me, because you think about in the New Testament, you see Jesus and the New Testament authors using bits of the Old Testament in ways that don't necessarily line up with what they meant originally, right? They're kind of reimagining, they're applying kind of their new structures onto it, which when you come from a place of, well, the Bible is, you know, a flat text, everything means what it means, we have exact words, that gets problematic in terms of how did Jesus and the New Testament authors, how did they understand the Old Testament if they're kind of remixing it? Yeah, so that's the thing. I mean, I talk in my book about Midrash, which is this sort of ancient Jewish discipline of wordplay. Uh, and I use that as sort of a model or a way of thinking about what the ways we would um, encounter language today. Uh, the New Testament is really a form of Midrash. It's, it's, a, it's a way of taking and playing with or remixing the Old Testament. And for us, because we don't see it that way and we never, we never fossilize the Old Testament that way, it's like, yeah, fine, we can accept what Jesus is doing. But like Jesus and, and the disciples and Paul, they were not executed because they were reading from like the most popular commentary of the day. They were executed because they were, they were playing with scripture and words in ways that was so radical, it was actually intolerable. 
And uh, I think that that's really the Christian tradition. It's to have a certain amount of both theological courage and linguistic imagination that we would begin to dream together what the vocabulary of faith could mean in our day. So how do we balance, you know, reimagining things, kind of playing with language like you've just described with, because some people would say, okay, well then you're just making up new meanings, you're changing it to fit whatever you want, right? We see a lot of pushback on, you know, well, you're changing things to make it whatever you want it to be, to make it more acceptable to culture and things like that. How do we balance those two? Oh man, that's a good question. I mean, here's the thing. Um, it does make people uncomfortable. But I don't think that a word can ever mean what, whatever you want it to mean. You know, I say in the book, it doesn't mean that red becomes blue. That's not what that means. Yeah. Uh, what happens is, and I actually use C.S. Lewis as a guide in this. You know, C.S. Lewis wrote a great book that not a lot of people have read. And it's an academic work published by Cambridge University Press. It's called Studies in Words, and it's a book on linguistics. Fascinating read if you like geeky crap like that. <laughs> um, but in that book, he says, language always changes. It always changes. I mean, this is really uncontroversial. It's controversial, I guess, to evangelical Christians, but it's not controversial among people who know how words work. It's just like, yeah, that's what happens. Language changes. Um, C.S. Lewis uh, uses the metaphor of a tree. And so there's kind of this central idea, and that's kind of the trunk of the tree. And over time, there are branches upon branches upon branches that grow out from that word when new meanings sprout. The, the, new, the, the, the new way of conceiving of a word is typically connected to those previous understandings. But they're bringing to life something new and different. And that is the case. You know, if you ask me, so is sin a weight in some way? Or is it a debt in some way? Or is it a problem in some way? Or is it a sickness in some way? Uh, the answer is yes. Uh, there's that each of those are true answers, but they're incomplete answers. Hmm. Each of those things is pointing to some real component of that word, but uh, it's not, it's the truth. It's not the whole truth, so help you God. <laughs> and so I think, I think that that is uh, the lesson that I've learned from this. And now how do you keep yourself accountable to not, to not push something beyond the breaking point, to not make a word mean whatever you want it to mean? Uh, I think it's, it's by wrestling with these words in community and not just wrestling with these words individualistically. Yeah. So in kind of the middle or the second chunk of the book, you go through a list of words that you've kind of reimagined or, or kind of you've reevaluated uh, what they mean. And, you know, words like pain or disappointment or even the word God or brokenness. Could you are there like two or three of those that really stuck out to you in terms of what you learned they meant, but how your view on what they meant or could mean changed? You know, let me, I'll pick one that, and, and I'll pick one because it'll take me longer to talk through, but I think it's, <laughs> I think it's like apropos to this podcast and to your, your mission. And it's the word pain. Yeah. Um, you know, there were, there are many words the the second half, the first half of this book is mostly what we've been talking about. The second half is, is 
like 17 essays, 17 different words that I'm reimagining. And one of those words is pain. And, you know, there were some words that I chose and there were other words that chose me. And this is a word that chose me. And there are a lot of people listening to this that they've had to wrestle with what the word depression means or what the word worry means. Uh, that's worry is a big word we need to reimagine because we've, we have imagined the word worry as something that's sinful. And yet we know that many people are given to worry because of forces outside of their own control. Yeah. And that's a word that needs a little bit of life breathed into it. Uh, but the word pain, uh, chose me the morning that I woke up and couldn't feel my hands, which is a, a really scary thing for someone who, is a writer. I mean, I eat what I kill, uh, and I kill with my hands, so to speak, right? That's, I go out, I hunt, I'm writing, and whatever I do, I make money. And if I don't, if I'm not writing, I'm not making money. Right. And so without my hands, I can't pay the rent. Without my hands, I can't buy lunch. And that loss of feeling spread from my hands to my arms, my arms to my shoulders, down my back, into my knees, my neck, and uh, it was the scariest thing of my life because I experienced in that moment and up until this moment a kind of pain that was different than any pain. I had always used the word pain to talk about acute pain. And acute pain is something you experience, but eventually it goes away. Yeah. What do you do with pain you're stuck with? Chronic pain, a chronic disorder, yeah. a never-ending disorder. What do you do with that? Well, Christians, I think, have talked about pain, and this can be overlaid to mental health conversations perfectly. Christians have talked about pain in two very unhelpful ways. One is pain as a, a gift. So you talk about pain in like um, neo-monastic communities or mystical communities. Uh, in extreme forms, you'll see communities that self-flagellate or they crucify themselves. And they say pain is a good thing embrace pain, seek out pain, uh, uh, suffering and pain is the primary portal through which we encounter the divine. And that's just about the cruelest conception of pain I can think of for somebody who's in pain. Uh, the kinds of people who, who um, ascribe to these kinds of conceptions of pain are not people who live in pain like I do. Uh, because to tell me that this is a good thing and this is a gift from God it sure doesn't feel that way. I, I sure can't. I, I sure can't conceive of it that way and make sense of my life. It certainly doesn't make God out to be the kind of being that I'd want to follow. Yeah. The other conception says, no, 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 no. Pain is not good. Pain is terrible. Pain is horrible. Pain is a bad thing. God doesn't want you to have this pain. God wants to get rid of this pain. In fact. Uh, this pain is probably uh, the cause of sin in your own life. And how many people who, who have said, well, you know, you've got depression. What's going on in your life that's causing this? Well, just pray and the Spirit will take it away from you. In fact, maybe the, the presence of this pain is due to faithlessness. Yeah. So if you just had some more faith, and man, if you have, now this is very attractive. This, this framework is very attractive to people who live in pain 
because it promises you what you want to get rid of it. The problem is, is that it's a false promise yeah. because you, you realize that uh, you, you develop, you work, you work overtime to get rid of sin, to become pietistic. You work overtime to up the amount of faith in your life and the pain doesn't go anywhere. And that sends you on this downward spiral that compounds your pain yeah. because it says now, not only do I have the reality of pain, but now I have this extra helping of guilt because apparently I am not holy enough or not faithful enough or God doesn't love me enough to get rid of that pain. Yeah. And I would say again, both of those things in some way are partially true, but not completely true. Yeah. Uh, I don't think God wants us to have pain. I don't think God gets any joy from seeing his children suffer. At the same time, for whatever reason, pain is a reality, and there isn't some sort of like door that can be unlocked by more faith or less sin uh, that will get us out of that pain that we see now in the United States. There are over 100 million people, perhaps twice as many, who live in some kind of chronic condition, and they're not going to get out of that. So pain is not something God wants to give us. It is not a good thing. Um, it is a bad thing, but it is oftentimes something we get stuck with. And yes, we can learn something from it. So I, I say in the book, pain is a terrible teacher. Uh, it's something that we should try to alleviate. But so long as it sticks around, maybe we ought to do some reflection on it. Maybe we ought to learn the lessons it can teach us. There are things that you can learn in pain that you'll never learn in full health. There are things that you can learn in depression that you'll never learn in total perfect peace. There are things that you will learn in an anxiety disorder that you will never learn without it. So, so long as it's there, while you work to alleviate it, maybe you should also devote some energy to learning from it. And it's those kinds of reflections that I try to offer throughout this book. Yeah. So you read a whole chunk about people who don't want to sound like their parents or because they're trying to embrace a more inclusive, pluralistic society. So they're shying away from these conversations. What do we do with all of this? We say, okay, we need to reimagine words, yada, yada. But other people still are going to have those things attached to them, right? If I reimagine the word pain, but then I go have a conversation with somebody who's in pain and they still have kind of all that context and baggage attached to it, then it's still going to be weird for me to use that word, right? I mean... Yeah, I think, I, I think first of all, the types of conversations in this book are the types of conversations that you have in safe spaces with people who want to have them. So learning to speak God from scratch doesn't mean going and forcing people to have conversations with you. What it means is creating intentional spaces where questions are welcome, where doubts are expected, and where words are meant to be played with, not defended. And uh, a lot of people don't have those spaces. Uh, they don't know where they are. They don't know where to find them. And what I say is, is good, go create them. In the back <laughs> of the book, there's actually a, a thing called a how-to guide for seekers and that you can use in small groups, PTA, with your PTA friends and with your neighborhood, uh, you know, mom's group or whatever, whatever communities you have. If you have people who are mildly spiritually curious, 
uh, it's a guide for you to begin to reimagine these as a community. What I would see happening there is, is let's say you've, you have a new way of understanding this word that's more helpful, but maybe you encounter someone who is still stuck in some of those old, old harmful tropes. What you can do then is you can go to, the, to, to the, that individual, invite them into this space and say, what has this word meant for you? And why has it been harmful? And what would be a better way for us to use this word that would be life-giving to you and not soul-sucking for yeah. you? And I think that could be an incredibly healing experience. Yeah. Hey, if you want to connect with Jonathan, you can find him all over social media at Jonathan Merritt. I'll put some links in the show notes. You can find him at jonathanmerritt.com. Uh, you can buy this book, Learning to Speak God from Scratch, Why Sacred Words Are Vanishing and How We Can Revive Them on Amazon. It comes out August 14th. Uh, he also has a book tour coming up all over the country. And then he has a couple different podcast projects that he's on. He co-hosts a podcast called The Faith Angle. And then uh, he mentioned it a little bit there, I think, at the beginning, but a new podcast project that goes along with this book called The Seekers and Speakers Podcast. If you want to connect with me, you can find me at robert-vore.com or on social media at Robert Vore. Jonathan, before we close out, do you have any closing words for our audience today if they're wrestling through some of this language or anything like that? Yeah, I would say uh, I, think that, I think that speaking God is important. Uh, what I want to do in this book is remind people that words are important. What I don't want to do is create an idolatry of language. And so one thing, and I, I point this out at the end of the book, is what I really hope people will do is they'll begin speaking God as a first step. But ultimately, we have to move beyond speaking words and begin living words. Hmm. And so what I want people to do is not just speak grace, but that they would go and embody grace. And they would not just speak mercy afresh, but they would go and live and embody mercy and compassion and kindness and all of the words that we talk about in this book. And so my hope is that through this book, people will find confidence in the vocabulary of faith again, but maybe also find confidence in God again. I mean, mm. that would be something that would make me really happy. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us today. It was a fantastic conversation. Go grab this book. It's a fantastic read. Uh, you won't regret it, I promise. Thank you for joining us, Jonathan. Oh, yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for listening to the CXMH Podcast. Want to score some major brownie points? Leave us five stars and an honest review on iTunes. Follow us on social media at CXMH Podcast and email us with questions, comments, and interview requests at CXMHpodcast at gmail.com. A final note. If you're in a dark place today, struggling with suicidal thoughts, you are not alone. Professional help is available 24-7 at 1-800-273-8255.